This is part two of a three-part podcast. I'm Edward Norton. No, not that one, the other one, and I love pies. No, not that kind, the other kind. Hermes is an old-school forum packed full of friendly people who occasionally give out a slice of pie. You'll never forget your first slice of pie. It made me feel so good, I had to buy a whole pie so I could share the love. Oh, and there's apples too. Sign up at permies.com to join in the world of homesteading and permaculture, and you too might get a slice of pie. I think the thing comes down to is this. Um, we, we found ways of exploiting fossil fuel energy, which is incredibly energy dense. And its energy return on investment is huge. And as a result, we were able to subsidize the building of very large-scale energy systems that effectively produced infinite amounts of power you didn't have to think about out of a plug on your wall for very cheap. Boy, is that difficult to compete with from the end consumer's viewpoint but it hides all of these costs. Number two is the costs are now slowly but surely rising. And I would say from every, you know, I go through this in detail in the PDC, why those costs will continue to rise into the future. Right. Right. So we got spoiled on effectively infinite amounts of, of almost free power. And we set up systems that were, basically assumed that that would be there forever. And when that assumption is no longer true, those systems become problematic. Because if I tell you as a designer that, yeah, that wall plug is an infinite source of free energy, then all of a sudden you're like, well, who? As a designer, I don't have to even consider it. It's just like, however much I pull, I just... I just pull that much, right? It's, I don't worry about it. There's other design priorities I'm going to put my time and effort into. When the energy becomes extremely expensive, now all of a sudden it becomes a much higher design priority. And you start to find that if in your initial design concepts you weren't concerned about energy consumption at all, that oftentimes you took the easy way out, and the good news is that through some smart design, you can drastically reduce the amount of consumption. And so when people, when I tell people we're going to reduce energy consumption in the form of electricity by 80 to 90 percent, they're convinced that that has to come with a significant loss of functionality, a significant decrease in quality of life. And I tell them, no, what we're going to do is we're going to improve your quality of life while we um, make that reduction. Um, so there is, however, there are some trade-offs. And one of the trade-offs is that fossil fuels can be burned at any moment to provide uh, power, whether the sun is shining or not, regardless of weather and so on. And as a result, we've gotten very used to the idea that not only is the wall plug an infinite source of um, of energy, but it's also a non-time dependent. You can plug into it and pull from it whenever you take the whim without worrying about what's actually going on in the rest of the world. And so, yes, if you are going to work with uh, renewable energy that's produced on-site or locally, then you have to re-engage with the natural world of which you're a part. You can't pretend that you are in an isolated bubble that isn't influenced by the rest of what's happening in the natural world around you. And I would actually submit that's highly psychologically, emotionally, and cognitively critical for us as living beings living on the planet, um, that part of the reason people have... Um, so many we call them emotional crises of civilization is because we're cut off from um, our world. And it's been very interesting working with people who want to be fully off grid, who are like, well, yeah, if the sun isn't shining, then that's then that's when we won't use the power because 
you know, nature is like that. It, it, you, you have times of plenty and times of scarcity, and you work with those cycles, and it's part of being uh, an integral part of the larger ecosphere, right? Um, so, you know, uh, boy, I could go a lot of directions from there. I would just say, <laughs> that, yes, you, you know, you, you design when you're, when I'm designing for um, off-grid power, then one of the very first things that I'm telling everybody is this requires you to re-engage with the world that, you know, you're living in, um, that we're going to have to redesign the whole system from the ground up. We're not going to just try putting solar panels on a suburban house and powering it as if it was being powered from the power grid. That's a losing proposition um, right off the start because it's going to be way more expensive than is practical in terms of environmental impact, in terms of monetary costs, in terms of you know, operations and maintenance and so forth. It's just not not the way that you know you you need to go about it. Um, and um, so you know that's why I'm always thinking about when will when will solar power, for example, be plentiful, and how do we create the rest of the system? to make use of and harness that power when it is available in ways that um, uh, store energy in other, in other ways that allow for it to be extracted at later time. Like, for example, cases where I need to pressurize water, where we set the system up to actually pump the water uphill to a high cistern while we have plenty of sunlight, and now we can gravity feed the water whenever we want, right? This is a way of storing energy, not in batteries, um, but storing it in another way. And there's a lot of other approaches we can use to allow us to take energy when it is abundant and, um, and, and go ahead and put it into some sort of, uh, of a configuration where we can use it later. So most of the solutions for trying to make solar be economically viable, like merely just expensive, um, as opposed to all the other problems that come with it, is to be on grid. And so you leave out the whole battery thing. There's no batteries. Mm-hmm. Or you do like what Tesla's doing, and um, and you've got your solar on the roof, and you've got your batteries, and you're on the grid. Yes. And so, um, then what, you know, there, there's a buffet of things that go on, but the, but the bottom line is, and, and I've met some people that are very proud of their stuff in town and, um, they, uh, um, they've spent, you know, an immense amount of money to have a system that has no batteries. So they're still on the grid and it's like, but they generate more each year than what they actually use. Yes. And so they're very, they're very proud of that. But I want to point something out real quick while I'm thinking about it, which is basically this, you know, I'm working on, um, I have my LFA living futures accreditation and I'm working on three separate full, um, living building challenge buildings right now. Mm-hmm. And, um, the LBC standards are acknowledged to be the, like the most rigorous green building standards in the world. And they do require that you generate 105% of the energy that you use on an annual basis. But notice what I just said on an annual basis. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these, what they're doing is in order to meet that, they have a solar array, and you have to produce the power pretty much on site, um, with a few exceptions. Um, and um, so they've got the big solar array on site, and they're producing power. But they size the array so they can produce an excess in the summertime and pump it into the grid. And then in the wintertime, when they're running a deficit, they pull from the grid. So they literally are not able to run from the real-time energy being provided by the environment. They are producing an excess at one time of the year, and now they're actually pulling from oftentimes fossil fuel baseload during the moments when renewables are at their, at their lowest in order to be able to operate. So um, this is how they're able to do it. So one of the things is, like, 
the, the, the LBC building that we're working on right now fully off grid. It can't do that. It's fully off grid. There's no such thing as pumping into the grid, you know, and running the, the meter backwards enough in the summertime that come winter when you start pulling that you run it backwards in the summer more than you run it forwards in the winter. It doesn't exist. Right. So you have to take a very deep difference uh, of an approach um, when you're going to do that. And um, yeah, I'll just stop there. Yeah. And so there's, I want to say that if you are off grid, the, the mining involved, the environmental disaster to set up the system is pretty significant. And, and you could argue that the environmental disaster that you have paid for is still less than coal power, and I think you got a point there. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, um, uh, at the same time, if we can come up with systems where um, the, much like what you're saying, where you can have a more luxuriant life while simultaneously using 80 to 90 percent less energy. Yeah, I think I think that that is the path. To pursue, um, I want to I want to roll off the numbers really quick. Um, Mud and I spent weeks hashing through. We're trying to put together this infographic, and we spent weeks hashing through what is the cost of the average Montana home for heat, and uh, depending on the kind of heat. And so, I mean, um, the we. The kinds of heat that we decided to go with were electric baseboard, which ends up being about the same in cost per month as central electric. Um, or, you know, some other electrics, but okay, there's electric baseboard, then mini split, then in ground heat pump, natural gas, propane, wood stove, modern wood stove, pellet stove, masonry heater, and then rocket mass heater. Now, granted, there's twice as many different forms of heat that could still be added to this list, but it's it's kind of like uh, these are the ones that we decided to do because of what our goals are to try to make this infographic. And it's like maybe later we can make an even bigger infographic that won't fit on your screen, <laughs> but but for now, uh, this is this is what we came up with. So, electric baseboard, of course, is the most expensive at twenty one twenty one, and the price per kilowatt hour right now. As the average price per kilowatt hour for Montana is 13 cents per kilowatt hour. Now, at the same time, the current price of electricity in some parts of the United States is currently 38 cents per kilowatt hour. Now, uh, weren't you just telling me about some prices per kilowatt hour in Europe right now? Yeah, I was reading earlier this week, there were some folks in England who were saying that they are currently paying the equivalent of 65 cents per kilowatt hour at the moment um, when you translate it over to U.S. currency. Right. And then I think yesterday I ran across uh, an indication that there are parts of the Netherlands in which the equivalent cost is over 80 cents per kilowatt hour. So um, I, I just kind of feel like... Um... There's a lot of people um, who kind of have this very doomer-esque uh, perspective about how the the you know the the price of electricity is going to be over a dollar per kilowatt hour here in the United States in the next uh, few months, and I don't think that's going to happen for a variety of reasons. But um, uh, I also kind of think like there's the possibility that could happen in the next couple of years. Um, but then again, the Doomer stuff is always full of that kind of thing. And also there's the whole thing of like, and I do, I do, I do believe that if right now, if we took away all the subsidies on oil and petroleum here in the United States, that I think, I think the current price of gasoline has been hovering around $4 a gallon. It, it touched $5 a gallon for a while. But I think that if we took away all of the subsidies, I think we'd be pushing $20 a gallon for gasoline right now. Alan, do you have any thoughts about what the price per gallon would be as we took away the subsidies? That's a very complex question because yeah. there, are, there are layers and layers of subsidies. Yes. yes there, there are, are, you know, there's direct subsidies, there's indirect subsidies. 
Then you could even get down to the question of how much is uh, the military a subsidy, right? Like, you know, um, ah. you know, that, that our enterprise of running an international military to keep the whole process running, right? You know, it's actually secure the high seas for transport. Um, I mean, you could keep on going, right? Um, keep, uh, and intervene militarily, uh, in order to keep the spigots flowing in certain places. That's all a kind of subsidy. Where do you want to r- draw the boundary, right? And, um, so yeah, the question, it's a very complex question. I don't know if I could put a number to it and just say that it would be profoundly more expensive, um, if, if, um, we did not have an entire geopolitical system set up oh, yeah. around investing in keeping the fossil fuel industry uh, functioning. Well, if there was going to be an office pool and I put in a dollar and I might get $10,000 back and I've got one minute to pick a number, I'm going to pick $21 a gallon. That's my pick, and my guess is is that you're going to not play. <laughs> yeah, I, I tend not to play that game um, because then I get quoted on it. So I don't, I don't, I don't know the number. I just know that, yeah, it would it would be pretty substantial, right? I think right. the other thing I would say really quick is this: um, you know, because of the way we're trying to think, we're trying to think uh, in mechanistic. Uh, ways instead of oftentimes, like even in engineering school, we're trying to, to think in reductionist mechanistic ways with, in which, um, it's easier for us to think about, um, like immediate bifurcated, uh, results. That is, everything goes to hell in the handbasket immediately and the prices explode and that all happens like tomorrow. We have some sort of apocalypse or catastrophe and, you know, we, we, our movies show us that and everything else, but real world oftentimes doesn't happen that way. Right. I don't expect energy prices to, on average, do that. I expect that, yes, we'll see spikes in certain places like Europe is experiencing right now, but slowly over time, the physics tells us that the energy return on energy invested on all of these different fossil fuel sources is going down. And that indicates that slowly on average over time, the cost will continue to just inexorably go up. And so, but anytime you have a system that's dynamic like that, you're going to have large excursions around the average. That is, you're going to have peaks, you know, we're going to have in certain areas, the, the price will spike temporarily and it'll crash. But if you look at the average over time, what's happening is it's unfolding is that the amount of energy um, available per capita is going down, and the price of capita, uh, the, the price of energy per unit is slowly going up. So, you know, what that means to me is that um, we have to, to just basically assume that that's the case as we design going forward, right? We need to design yeah. assuming that energy becomes a more precious commodity over time and We'll occasionally have big price spikes, and we'll occasionally have um, um, supply crises as we go forward. I kind of feel like, in in a way, um, I'm cool with it. I mean, when we're talking about price spikes, uh, you know, four years ago, five years ago, a price spike would have been going up 10%. Yes. But... Um, I'm thinking that, that within the next few years, we're going to see the price of a lot of energy stuff double. I would agree. Yeah. And, and it's, um, but you know, I don't, I'm not a doomer. You're not a doomer. We're not doomers. We, we, we really kind of don't give a shit about this. But at the same time, part of the reason we don't give a shit about this is because we have so much put into the alternatives. So, for example, oh, no, the cost of your heat went up to $20,000 a month, and mine is still free. Yeah. No. Now, you're over there freezing your nubs off because you've turned the thermostat down to 50, and you you can't deal with 50. 
at the same time, I'm I'm pushing over seventy five, and uh, I'm I'm down to a t shirt over here. Woo, so warm, and uh, you know, it looks like I'm about out of wood, but that pile of wood is going to be plenty for this winter. And yeah. it, it's like uh, crazy, isn't it? Um, yeah, and it just has to do with a little bit of knowledge. That's all it is. Yeah, I think there's also if you are if for some reason you you are completely tied to you know like psychologically emotionally tied to maintaining the system as it currently is, uh, then yes, it's scary. On the other hand, when you start to look at and understand that um, these alternative systems actually provide really deep answers and they also can improve your quality of life, um, then it becomes an awful lot less scary. And um, I think that's that's what I'm up to is trying to build really great examples of that where people can see it. Um, they can come and experience it and realize that, yes, even though it does require engaging with the world in a little different way, that that actually is grounding and um, and nourishing uh, in ways that uh, just mindless consumption of resources coming at you automatically is not. Um, and that's just that's that's scary to some people, and uh, it takes a little while for them to wrap their head around the fact that um, you know working with resources in a different way. Uh, actually can be significant improvement, not, um, scary. So I want to, I want to buzz through my list here really quick because, well, in fact, you know, maybe I don't even know. Well, uh, I mean, I want to expand on everything a hundredfold and, and really that's not what the function of this podcast is about. But we started off with electric baseboard. The average size of a Montana home at this moment is 2000 square feet. And apparently that's not too far off from the U.S. average. Yeah. I think the U.S. average is like 2050 or something like that. But the the size of the average Montana home right now is 2,000 square feet. Um, and, of course, Montana is a pretty cold state. Uh, the, the cost, the annual cost to heat an average Montana home with electric baseboard is $2,121. So, you know, a little more than 2000 bucks. And then if you're going to use a mini-split system, so like a 2,000-square-foot home would probably have three mini-splits, then the the cost uh, to heat that home, the average annual cost is $1,326. Um, and then an in-ground heat pump is about half that. At six hundred and six dollars, so less than half of that actually. Natural gas is about the same price at six hundred and thirty-six dollars. Um, propane, propane heat is very, pretty common in Montana. In a very rural state, a lot of people living rurally. Propane is one thousand four hundred and eighty-five dollars. Now, I want to insert a quick complaint about this. So this is. This is um, uh, using uh, a price of $2.10 per gallon for propane, which is a high price and a low price. I mean, it is it is how the propane market works here, which I understand is the way it works all over the United States, is basically you'll have pretty much one or two propane dealerships in the area, and they will change their price willy-nilly. Not because their prices changed, but because what the market, you know, what they can get away with in the market. And so they'll jack up the price by a factor of 10 on a whim. Like, oh, uh, demand is up. Like we're suddenly we're, we're getting to be pretty busy. We're going to jack all our prices up to $8 a gallon. And at the same time, there's places where they want to draw you into their business. They sell it for less than a dollar a gallon. So. Propane is a weird business. And, uh, and I suggest if you're in the propane, you know, you gotta be, you probably want to get out of it. Um, if, if you're heating with propane or using propane in any way, uh, not only is it the grid, 
you know, um, off-grid's dirty little secret, they use propane, and wherever you use propane, that's the grid. But the the prices are so incredibly volatile. And on top of that, if they can come up with an excuse to jack the prices up by a factor of 10, they will. And even though their prices are unchanged. Okay. The only place I use propane um, in a design is if I have for emergency backup generator where I have a critical use. Like, oh, yeah, we got to keep, we, you know, like, in this community, we have to keep this particular thing going for a life critical thing, like run somebody's CPAP machine or whatever that they need. Right. It's the only thing I will use it for is for emergency backup if everything else fails. And then there, therefore it's a very small uh, thing. It really requires a small tank. And in, in that case, I think emergency backup, there's, I don't think that there, if you're going to go with fuel, I mean, some people do diesel and it's like, oh, diesel's stupid. Diesel's the worst. Propane is is far better than diesel. Yeah. If you're um, using it for emergency only, then the nice thing about propane is it will last practically forever in the tank. Yeah. So that's and diesel why I go won't. in that direction. Yeah. Right. Diesel will not. Gasoline will not. You're constantly fighting it. So, you know, if you have to have an emergency backup generator for life-critical applications or whatever, right. propane makes a lot of sense. If all your other things fail and you're trying to, you know, have uh, to support a life critical use. Yep. Propane. If for emergency backup purposes, propane wins hands down. The others, the others are all stupid. I mean, I, I think it's a fool's game if you do anything right. other than propane. So, uh, Moving on deadline. Not for, no. not for ongoing use. I, would, I don't do, you never use it for ongoing use. It's Absolutely ongoing. true. I agree because of the reasons I just mentioned. And yeah. in a very similar vein, pellet stoves. And, uh, and, and it's like pellet stoves have a lot of, there's a lot of good to be said about pellet stoves. Basically, um, they, they, they share a lot with rocket mass heaters and having a very efficient burn and, uh, and the big thing is with wood stoves, the prob- the primary problem with wood stoves is people trying to operate their wood stove overnight while they're trying to simultaneously sleep. And it's like, oh, wow, they fail in that space. Um, and, whereas pellet stoves do great in that space. You know, they are, they are just wonderful in that space. So pellet stoves, you're gonna, you're gonna heat your home with less biomass. And, and it's like, it's, it's a remarkable thing. And it's like, and then people want to start arguing about pellet stoves compared to wood stoves. And it's kind of like, but there's a, there's a dark and deep downside to pellet stoves. And, um, and I think a lot of it isn't even so much intentional. I think, I think a lot of the pellet stove stuff is that you start off, there's a, there's a, um, uh, a sawmill in the area, a big ass sawmill, and they have a waste product, mountains of sawdust. And if they can make pellets, they make bank. That, that, that sawdust becomes an asset. And now they can sell it for, for, for great money and do really, really well. But the trick is, is like, Hey, how's that lumber market doing? Is it up? Is it down? And then the sawmill closes for like two or three years until the price of lumber goes back up or whatever. Whatever is the economic driver for them to have a viable business. And, um, and so suddenly you were buying those bags of pellets for like $3 a bag and you were like, man, it's so cheap to heat my house. And now suddenly the, uh, you can get them for $8 a bag, but you gotta drive three hours to go get them. And it takes you a few trips. It's, it's kind of like, okay, how's that pellet stove looking now? So suddenly the price of your heat has become problematic. Put Paul's brain on your plot. Do you have a hunk of land but don't know where to start? Do you have a world-changing permaculture idea and you need some feedback? 
Do you feel like the guy in overalls may inexplicably hold the keys to all your wildest permaculture and homesteading dreams? Well, you're probably wrong. But if you want to give it a go anyway, you can hire Paul for a consultation. He will be all yours for a whole entire hour. Schedule your Paul conversation today at permies.com slash consult. permies.com slash consult. Yeah, so, so I guess the question for me is like, okay, how do you produce your own wood pellets? And the answer is, practically you don't. It's an, yeah. it's an industrialized process. Yeah. And so what's happened was, I mean, it started as a, as a way of using a waste product. And then when they started to try to scale it, then what started happening was they started to go off and cut down forests specifically <laughs> for pelletizing. <laughs> And part of the reason that justifiably a number of different groups have complained about wood pellets is because you're not using locally sourced, regeneratively created wood as your fuel source. Right. Now what's happening is you've got in, in somewhere else, maybe a couple states away, you have a, a company cutting down forests and taking all of that and pushing it right into a pelletizing machine and then shipping it uh, long distances, and that's what you're burning. So you have the environmental destruction of clear cuts um, that is providing the, the feedstock for an industrialized process, long shipping, you know, and, and, yep. and packaging and so forth. And so you'll notice that when I created my specification for the carbon negative mass heater, the first item on the list is a on-site or local regenerative fuel production system um, where we are growing the wood very locally, either on-site or very, very nearby, and that it be regeneratively harvested. That is, no clear-cutting, none of this other stuff. That is, we are partnering with the local natural cycle, and we are helping to increase the overall forest cover and forest productivity in our area, and we are harvesting our fuel as a surplus product from that process. And for all of these... I have, there's so much more to say, which is why the infographic, this is just one row in the infographic. Yeah. And, and cause you're right, there's, there's all these other elements which make these other forms of heat suck so much as well as, so this is just one row describing how they suck and that is just annual operating cost. And, and I, I wanted to mention pellet stoves here because it's kind of similar to the propane thing. Like, the prices can be volatile. I mean, the reasons why they're volatile are going to be a little bit different, but, and it might even be a little bit the same, but yeah, there's, there's definitely environmental disaster on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the thing is pellet stove, the currently, uh, uh, the, the average price in Montana is $325 per ton. Which I think is about eight dollars per sack. Um, but the annual cost to heat your home with pellets in Montana right now is one thousand four hundred and thirty seven dollars um, uh, per year. So um, all right, that's so so propane and pellet stoves are actually about the same cost per year, and they have about the same volatility. And their prices. Now, natural gas and electricity are going to be a more stable price in general, year over year, mostly because they're regulated. And, um, but on the other hand, you know, I'm, 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 I'm having a hard time keeping the door closed on the doomers as they're, as they want it, because they've got a lot to say about this. And the indicators are all over the United States now and in Europe, especially. As, um, so for example, in, in Europe, the price of natural gas, uh, has gone up by a factor of 10, but the government has stepped in to subsidize it. And there's the, the whole story behind that. But let's talk about burning wood. Just wood that you can harvest yourself. Now, 
um, I'm going to, instead of talking, because the thing is, the weird thing is, is about the information about the cost of wood in Montana right now for, the, for per cord is um, the official price per cord, according to these government agencies, is $150 a cord. And I think right now you're going to be spending $250 to $300 per cord. But I think what they're doing is they're saying it's $150 per cord, but that's an average based upon what percentage of people go out and get their own wood versus what percentage buy cordwood. And so um, I don't suppose you have any idea of what the price per cord of wood is in your neighborhood. No, not off the top of my head. Okay. So um, so it's – but but just let's just forget about that a little bit. Well – so the price of a wood stove using six cords of wood at that price is $825. But, of course, if you're going to pay the full price for cords of wood, I think you should probably double that. So it would be $1,600. It'd be, therefore, it would be right up there with propane and natural gas. That's, so that's six cords of wood for a wood stove. A modern wood stove would be half of that. So $375 for three cords of wood. Now, the prices that we've got here, it's $150 per cord, but we also, in these calculations, have allowed for the first half a cord to be free because it's going to be just the sticks you pick up off of your yard or the many other sources that you might have for wood. So, for example, here in a rural area, most people have a little bit of a wood shop. And they have little projects that they do. And then you've got scrap wood left over that you burn. You know, like these little bits of two-by-four that you chopped off the end of, and it's too small to make anything else out of, so you throw it in the wood pile. But there's also the, you know, the branches and stuff that fall off your trees, and you pick them up and you throw them in the wood pile. And um, and they're kind of, they don't stack well. They're, you know, not very pretty. So that top of the stack. It's the first thing you're going to burn that year. But so so pretty much what I'm doing is I'm giving everybody a free half a cord of wood. Granted, some places are going to be able to get one or two cords for free for whatever their reasons are. But other places, you know, it's like, oh, we hire the gardener to come and take it all away, wherever away might be. And uh, and so then they just buy all of their uh, cord wood or whatever, you know. So all right, wood stove, six cords, modern wood stove, three cords. So I think a modern wood stove uses half the wood of a conventional wood stove. Would you agree with that, Alan? That's the right ballpark, yeah. Yeah, yeah, give or take, sure, sure. A masonry heater. I've written down 1.2 cords, so less than half of a modern wood stove. And then a rocket mass heater is 0.6 cords, which is half of what a masonry heater is. Do you wish – now, I'm saying for Montana. Yeah. Uh, so if if I say a modern wood stove is three cords and a conventional wood stove is six cords, and I say a masonry heater. So I'm thinking of like, you know, a $20,000 masonry heater, uh, a, a giant behemoth of a thing. 1.2 cords. Is that falling into the ballpark of your understanding of masonry heaters? Yeah, I think that for people who aren't familiar with all of them, the thing is that the original wood-burning stoves had inefficient combustion, and most of the heat went up the chimney. Okay, yeah. You got to a more modern wood stove, and we got to more efficient combustion, but we still lost a lot of heat out the chimney. When you go to a masonry stove, most of those are of lower combustion efficiency than a modern wood-burning stove, but they have a lot better capture of the heat before it goes out the chimney. They have a thermal mass that is gathering a lot of that heat before it escapes. And therefore, even though it is not a super high-efficiency burn, it um, captures a higher percentage of the heat and makes it usable. Therefore, it turns out to be more efficient at heating the space than a higher combustion efficiency wood-burning stove. 
When you go to a rocket mass heater, now we're combining super high efficiency combustion with a high efficiency storage of heat and letting less heat go out the chimney. So you get the best aspects of both, which is what allows for the whole system performance to be so much better. Exactly. Everything you said is is perfectly correct in my mind as well. I, I, I'm going to endorse everything you said 100% categorically. Um, I, I, and so, um, I think that my numbers are, are very good. I mean, these are numbers that Mud and I came to. They aren't just mine. And, mm-hmm. and, and we, we, we hashed through these numbers for a very long time. So basically, rocket mass heater, I've got it down to 0.6 cords. So a masonry heater uses about twice as much wood as a rocket mass heater. Um, and of course, uh, a, a modern wood stove will use five times more wood than a rocket mass heater, and an old school wood stove is going to use ten times more wood. Yeah, and for uh, those who don't know the history, that zero point six is not an invented number; that is an empirically derived number uh, from Paul measuring the amount of wood required to run. The rocket mass heater that's in, I think you're probably in that building right now, right, Paul? I am, um, but this building is also smaller than 2,000 square feet. Yeah, but it's also less well insulated. When we did the test, but, it was less well insulated. Yes, it's true. We're, we're, this building is less well insulated than the average Montana home. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, I, I kind of feel like, uh, so we're in that ballpark and, and I do want to insulate this building better. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then perform the test again. I also want to make some improvements to our, uh, rocket mass heater that we're using. I, and then do the test again. Um, but I, and I've got so much to say down there. I, I think that there's a way to get to the point that we get it down to 0.2 cords for this building, but that's, that's another story for another day. Yeah. Um, so just, we'll just say that, that there has been some, some empirical Work done to characterize that. It's not just a wild guess. It's, yeah. it's actually been proven that you can get, uh, building in Montana. Um, although, you know, one was slightly smaller than 2000 square feet, but also less well insulated and actually keep it at a comfortable temperature for an entire Montana winter at 0.6 cords of wood. Yeah. And, and comfortable indeed. And the beautiful thing is too, I, and, I'm not sure if I've ever said this in a podcast before, but um, I think it was sometime around the year 2000, 2001, 2002, somewhere around that time, I needed to get a new contract, and the and the dot com bubble had burst, so getting gigs was tough. But I was at the top of my game. So I was gonna. So basically, what I was trying to do is like, okay, how do I get the most possible money? And I found myself staying at my cousin's house in San Francisco. And so he lived in San Francisco, which, oh, what a delightful thing to do to, to be in that exact place. And you could walk half a block and learn what a Russian bakery is. (laughs) I, well, I bet I gained 10 pounds while I was there. Uh, visiting this Russian bakery, every, learning about every possible Russian pastry known to man. And, uh, but there were all of these wonderful places to eat and experience in San Francisco. But, uh, my, my cousin had put me up and he had this spare room and I got to stay in this spare room, which was nice. And, um, and it was January. Uh, in San Francisco, which is like, oh, so what? How cold does it get? And it's like, oh, it gets down to, you know, forties, thirties. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it's like, a, it's a damp cold. It kind of really goes to your bones. And, yeah. uh, but the thing is, is that the cost of energy was so high in San Francisco that my cousin did not turn on the heat. Except for once. And, and here's what happened. <laughs> so the heater is like, I don't know. It must be down in the basement or something. 
And, uh, and so what he did was, is he turned the heater on to like 50 and we gathered around this heat hole in the wall thing and we all hovered around it and put our hands out and we could feel the heat coming up. Um, and, and we did this for like 10 or 15 minutes and they shut the heat off. That was, that was the luxury of the moment. But apparently, a lot of people in San Francisco live this exact way. You know, um, it's very comfortable there most of the year, but when it gets to be less comfortable, they just, they just endure. They, they put on a hat and they put on a sweater and they, they grit their teeth. And it's like, that is a way to live. And, uh, I think that if they had a rocket mass heater, because they did, they had time, they had a yard. And they had three trees in their yard, and they had yard waste. And on top of that, there were pizza boxes and things of that nature that were just being thrown into the garbage. Because that's another thing, too, is the, the whole pizza box conundrum. You're not supposed to recycle it because it's got grease on it. And so then and they just threw it. In some cases, PFAS. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so some of those uh, pizza boxes have PFAS in them. Yeah. So the 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 moral of this story is that they they could have been with a rocket mass heater in this house. They could have been more comfortable for free. Mm-hmm. And um, they 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 could have when it got to be this cold, which wasn't very often. Then, then they could have, they could have had a fire. They could have burned that, that yard waste. They could have burned, burned, uh, some, uh, cardboard boxes or whatever, some papery products that was going to be entering into the waste stream. And they could have burned it so cleanly that there would have been virtually no smoke. And, um, uh, so it's, it's, and they could have been warm. They could have been, they could have led a more luxuriant life mm-hmm. as, a, as what, than what they were doing. Now, I imagine that there were a lot of people in the area at the same time. I mean, while I was there, I went and interviewed at companies, of course, that were, where the temperature indoors was 72. And, um, uh, businesses were 72. And uh, I'm sure there were a lot of homes that were 72, but yeah. I get the impression there were a lot of people who lived this particular way, and it's like this would have brought more luxury, as you know, as well as more comfort to their to their lives for free. Yeah. All right. Let me point out that, that you know I, I defined everything I did in the carbon negative mass heater definition very for a very particular reason, and um, the part of it is that. If like we here have anybody listening here who may be in architecture or that sort of thing, you know, and in, in, in development of say, you know, more densely populated areas, then they're, you know, one of the first questions to pop in their heads, well, okay, how do I scale that into a suburban or urban area, right? Like how do I do that in uh dense development where I've got five to 8,000 people per square mile, for example? And so the case study that I ended up using was one where we were using um, basically coppice agroforestry approach um, to be able to create um, large amounts of um, biomass right on on very small sites in um, an urban or suburban area. And uh, this is kind of how you know, I can show, I won't look at all the math here, but I can show how we can scale this. Um, so I was coupling that with the rocket mass heater because it's so efficient and therefore has to use so little wood, and then also coupling it with a high-performance building envelope in which we were also using strategies like annualized thermal inertia and passive um, solar gain and so forth, again, to minimize the amount of wood so that any wood production we were doing – would be would actually cover more um, residences, and by combining all of these things in this whole systems approach, 
um, we're showing how the math does start to work out to be able to use this as the supplemental heat system for um, uh, for buildings, even in um, medium density situations. I, I I I agree. Like when we're talking about any of this kind of heat, naturally. Um, Passive solar combined with annualized thermal inertia wins by yeah. far. And yeah. at the same time, even with those, I would still want to have on standby a rocket mass heater. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and it's part of what I've learned over the last couple of years. Yeah. In that every once in a while, somebody in the house could get sick. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, I think, I think for a lot of illnesses, if anybody has a fever, let's take the temperature of the house up from 72 to 76. Yes. You, you want to have the ability to do that. And, for, you know, and it's like, let's, let's take it up to something. So that way, if people in the house are feeling poorly, let's, let's increase the heat in the house. It'll, it'll help them to get through it better, faster. And yeah. so, um, I think that having, Having a rocket mass heater standing by is is a great. Way. It's it's kind of like what we talked about having you know emergency power generation, you know this emergency heat generation system, which you know also helps to cool the house a little bit in the uh, uh, summertime, at least in Montana. Maybe not as much in Alabama. Yeah. Um, right now, I've got these um, tiny home duplexes we're building for indigenous group, um, and we're putting a six-inch rocket mass heater in each one. Um, it's 400 square feet per tiny house, basically. And But it's already using annualized thermal inertia, passive solar, um, high, you know, very uh, a green roof, um, and straw bale walls, and all the things, yeah. right? The goal here is the building design passively heats and cools itself as much as possible. Right. And then that means that the rocket mass heater is an auxiliary heat source. So now we've already reduced the need for auxiliary heat source by, say, 75 to 80%. Right. Now we go in with a rocket mass heater that is way more efficient than any other um, auxiliary heat source. And so now we really are using a very small amount of biomass uh, to meet the heating needs of this building over the course of a year. Yeah. And, and it's like, yeah, so I, that is, that is the optimal way. And, and it's like, uh, and it's, oh, and I, it's and hard to have a conversation about that with the people that cannot hear it. And yeah. all they can talk about is mini splits. Yeah, and of course I'll also just point out that at that exact moment when the auxiliary heat is needed is the exact moment when electricity is the most difficult. You know, um, because all most oh, right. of the renewables, most of the, all the renewables down here, in the moment when I need it, those renewables are not available, and the only thing left is grid. And at the moment, if I'm pulling off the grid at that moment, almost certainly that base load is coming from fossil fuels or nuclear, not from a renewable. Uh, and I, I, I've got, I, I want to go back into talking about the biophilic stuff, but we talked about that in yeah. our last podcast, so we, we right. can let that go. I'm going to, I'm going to move on with the list. I'm going to set the okay. heating stuff aside because I, because both of us are very passionate about it, rightly so. Um, and, uh, at the same time, I kind of feel like I got some more bits and bobs I want to cover before we're done today. And, okay. uh, the next thing I've got written down here is the separate program. So I'm not sure how much of the separate program I've shared in the podcast, but basically, um, if it's, if we're between events and people want to come out for a little bit, uh, they can rent, uh, one of our cabins for like a week or a month or whatever. Uh, we've had a lot of wonderful seppers come out here for a couple of months at a time. It's been delightful. And um, so, is sepper a acronym, or is it just named after sep? Oh, 
it's uh it, it started off as an acronym. <laughs> so seriously excited about permaculture pampering. And I'm I'm not sure how much pampering we do. We do we do we do pretty good. You end up being the most pampered person here <laughs> for whatever that's worth. <laughs> but uh, I think that it's possible that there could be permaculture sites that pamper more. Uh, definitely. We, we're, th- our cabins are still pretty rustic and, uh, um, and, you know, you'll be warm. Uh, at the same time, uh, you'll, in the wintertime, you probably want to use the bathroom in the Fisher Price house as opposed to heading out to Willow Bank or, uh, Willow Wonka. <laughs> and if, so, but the, but the other thing is that the price is very reasonable. Um, and so, uh, it's, it's a very low price. And, it, and I don't think it's so much about like, uh, coming here for vacation to sit in one of our cabins, I think it's more like to participate in what we're doing. And, um, I, I guess, I guess the big thing is, is that, um, I think that there are people who believe in what we're doing. And, um, uh, I, I look around at other projects that are being done, other, other projects that people can put their time into. And of course, I feel like mine is by far better. Um, I, I feel like so many of these organizations are awful, really. I mean, they're, they're like, oh, we're all about the environment. And it's like, um, I don't know. It, it seems more like greenwashing. And, and I feel like we're what we're doing is a bit more profound but it's it's uh um but i don't know it's it's based on a certain set of standards i suppose um and uh i i would like to see more people participate but at the moment what i'm trying to get to is is it is that i think that renting one of our cabins for a month is pretty cheap or even for a week or whatever um and what i want to say is Please help. Please throw your shoulder in. Uh, and the thing I'd like to request <clears throat> at this moment, which um, a lot, of, some people are going to be like, "Hey, Paul, I'll just send you money." And it's like, I don't know how I would spend it to get this. So I think that there's going to be people out there that are amazing cooks, and I would like to ask you to come out for and be part of the separate program. And make a few meals for the boots because what I, I want to do is I want to, of course, entice there to be more boots in the boot camp. And, um, and this is the cornerstone of the work that we do, which leads to if we can get more boots in the boot camp, we can accomplish more things, get more experiments done and documented and get the results out more. And one day, one of those results is going to go and do great things. And go viral and bring attention to all the other stuff that we're doing. And so to me, everything is hyper focused on getting more boots in the boot camp. I just, I just kind of feel like I'd love to see there be more candy for the boots. And, um, I think, I think what's appreciated more is human beings that come by and are wonderful and lovely and do wonderful and lovely things. Uh, granted, you know, there's been people that have put money up for boots. The BRK is an example, and that is great. That makes it so the boots feel like they actually, after, uh, when they hit that BRK, that during that time frame, that they actually came out dollars ahead than if they were in the city at a worky job. And so that's been great for the, the boots. Um, at the same time, uh, when somebody comes by and they start cooking and doing amazing cooking things, it's just, it's just wonderful. Um, it's just, uh, you know, the joy is, is, is a, it's a big, big positive. Uh, we do have people who sometimes send care packages, <laughs> which is great. 
We've had we've had some delightful food-based care packages show up, and it does it it really spreads some joy over here. Um, so anyway, I just kind of wanted to put out a request for uh, you know not only the separate program in general, bring your skills, whatever those skills might be, um, and help us move all this stuff forward uh, to build a, a better world for the future boots and for future events. This podcast is continued in part three. Hey, this is T. Blankenship. Are you a fan of pie? Where there is pie at permies.com. This pie grants the user of secret access. You also get free things like videos of Wheaton Labs, the ability to add two thumbs up, two posts, and more. To get pie, go to permies.com forward slash pie to get the inside scoop of what pie can do for you. Again, that is permies.com forward slash pie.